Hello, and welcome to Systematically, your weekly theology podcast. I'm John Heaps. I am talking to you from Austin, Texas, but I'm here via video conference as usual with Ryan Hemmer in Minnesota. Hey, Ryan. Hey, John. And with Robin Beret up in Toronto. Hey, Robin. Oh, hey. Uh, Robin, there's somebody there with you. I can't quite make out. Who's that there with you? Oh, well, the, the squirmy little worm that makes grunting noises on here is not me. <laughs> well, this, this week, anyway. This week, yeah, exactly. Or I can blame all them on her. Uh, with us today is two-week-old India Rose. Yay! Joined both our podcast and our little family on February 22nd. Yeah, it's terrific. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and we, got to, we got to say hi a second ago. She's beautiful, of course, um, in, that, in that derpy, I just drank so much milk kind of baby way. And uh, we're so glad she's here. And then also with us from Sterling, Kansas, is Glenn Butner. Hey, Glenn. Hey, how's it going? It's going good. We're glad you're here. Uh, Glenn is here. Glenn is uh, at Sterling College. He's going to talk to us about a couple articles he wrote. Um, and also, uh, uh, you, you got like a contract to write a book, right? Yep. Uh, the book is out now. Good. Uh, called The Son Who Learned Obedience. Yeah, talking about eternal oh. functional subordination. Um, oh, hey, he's holding it up. It's gorgeous. Um, so we'll, uh, we'll put a link in the show notes for that. So if you want to go pick it up and take a look at it after the conversation today, you can do that. But uh, before we get into all that fun business, uh, we have guest questions because we want to get to know Glenn a little bit. So uh, I'm going to throw first to you, Robin. Robin, what question do you have for Glenn? Well, Glenn, I just, um, I, want, I want to get off on the right foot here. So I want to know, what's your most regrettable fashion decision? It can either be like a one-time event where um, you showed up and massively misjudged things, or it can be um, like you willingly wore a rat tail for like your <laughs> entire 20s type thing. So Yeah, uh, I have a couple. Um, one of the first that comes to mind, um, uh, so I've got very curly hair, uh, and currently it's cut relatively short, but in high school it was a little longer. Um, but I could basically throw it out. Um, and so I played on the high school basketball team and decided one day to pick my hair out, and, <laughs> which looks ridiculous on me. You can't, it's not as funny if you can't see a picture of me and realize how ridiculous that is. But, um, so I got fouled and I'm on the free throw line at Oak Ridge Military Academy, uh, who we're playing against, uh, who of course all have to have you know, their hair buzzed and the whole gym starts chanting, cut your hair, <laughs> which I go back and forth on between, was that hilarious or was I just way too ridiculous? Um, I so think that, it can be both. Maybe so. Yeah. The, the military academy was just worried about cultural appropriation. Uh, yeah, no <laughs> doubt. Yeah. Probably validly. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Ryan, what's your guest question? Hey, Glenn, have you ever, uh, or maybe on multiple occasions, attempted to um, bake, cook, basically use heat to turn uh, ingredients into food um, and have the results be just terrible? Um, Definitely. Can you Um, give us some examples? Sure. 
So I'm going to show that I was a ridiculous high schooler, but actually another story from high school this time. Uh, we went spring break my senior year. We went down to Beach Week at Myrtle Beach, and I injured my leg playing basketball like a week before we went down. And so and I couldn't get in the water. I couldn't do much of anything. So I was planning on kind of just sitting around. I was bummed about it. So we went to the store to buy food for the week. And uh, my friends are just buying something easy, you know, like microwave pizzas and stuff. And I'm like, well, at least I'm going to eat something nicer. So I decided to make chili. Um, but the spices were kind of expensive. So my first mistake was I bought chili powder and some red pepper. And then I bought uh, some Cajun ramen thinking I can use their spice pack. <laughs> um, my, my second mistake was in not realizing you should strain the green beef before doing the sauce. So I wind up with this grotesquely greasy chili, <laughs> partly seasoned with Cajun ramen spices that was barely edible. And my friends telling me, you know, you know, we're busy. We're not going to take you back to the store. This was your own dumb fault. Um, <laughs> So I ate that or begged food for about three days before it finally drove me out because my leg injury, I, I couldn't even drive to the store to get a replacement. So Brutal. that was a big failure. That, that definitely meets the definition. Yeah. Yikes. Um, all right. And I'm, I, uh, my question in the, in the past has been, uh, what's your favorite bar in the world, which is a question I stole from a podcast called uh, Bombshell. But uh, because I'm a, a stone cold thief, I'm going to steal Robin's question from a few weeks ago, which is, if you could have an animal sidekick, what would it be and why? Excellent. Um, I was telling you earlier, actually, I've got two kids, and so I kind of feel like one of them already is an animal sidekick because my almost two-year-old <laughs> likes to uh, randomly start playing like he's a frog all the time and just jumping and saying ribbit. So if we don't count him as my animal sidekick, um, I've always wanted to have a falcon. Oh, very okay. nice. They're really fastest bird, and you could just kind of have one perch on your shoulder while teaching, and see how <laughs> students reacted. Um, it's yeah, a good so way to it's good it's a it's a good way to keep that kid who uh, carries uh, his pet rat around campus out of your class. There you go. Yeah, I was thinking it's a good way to keep them awake. I'll do about anything to keep students from falling asleep. <laughs> I feel like but, you, Benedict had his raven, and Glenn has his falcon. Oh yeah, there you go. Yeah, exactly. There it is. Uh, yeah, trying to keep kids awake in class, I, you'd have to like cut the internet line and the cell tower down. I think to mm -hmm. keep kids awake in class. That's. Well, I find it's when I tell them they can't use their phone that they fall asleep. Uh. They're going to be awake, but they're not going to be paying attention. So yeah, there you go. This is the problem with PowerPoint because you always turn the lights off, and it's just oh, like yeah. Yeah. yeah, I prefer to lecture like I just prefer a whiteboard, my own crappy drawings, because then, well, A, they have to work to figure out what they are and B, the lights are on. So I can see you sleeping and they're not as tempted to sleep. Yeah. I, like a, I like a chalkboard because I like uh, to make sure that I leave class with uh, a white chalk line across my ass from leaning <laughs> against the <laughs> little chalk holder tray. Um, find that's uh, that's the big benefit of having a chalkboard. So that's your style faux pas, huh? Yes, my no, if only. If only it was if only it was that uh that tame. All right. Um so let's get right into it. Uh so we're gonna we're gonna break protocol and we're gonna actually do some theology today on the podcast. 
Um, Glenn, I don't, I don't know if you are a listener at all, but we, we call it a theology podcast and we inevitably do 40 minutes of philosophy. Um, so, but today we're going to honestly get right down to it. So, um, weird line. Yeah. Right. Sometimes. So in this case, uh, you've written on, uh, a phenomena in, um, evangelical theology, uh, and it goes, goes by the name eternal functional subordination and, uh, or subordinationism. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came upon this topic, uh, how you ended up writing on it? Sure. Um, so it actually all began back in Milwaukee, um, where I was a doctoral student with John and Ryan. Um, I was specializing in economic ethics, actually, but was trying to develop a second specialty in the Trinity. Uh, and so the pastor at a, a church that I was attending said that there was um, a special uh, weekend-long series of talks on the Trinity at this church that he was friends with the pastor there. And, and would I like to come and check it out? So I went on Friday night. Um, and there was um, this theologian explaining how the Trinity worked um, and explained that one of the main ways to distinguish between the persons was in terms of their relations, so tracking so far, and then explained that the relations centered on different authority roles. Uh, so the Father having supreme authority, the Son eternally obeying the Father, and then the Spirit, um, which is hardly ever talked about in this debate, but if I remember correctly, the Spirit would then submit to both. Um, but that usually falls by the wayside. So that was surprising to me. Um, that was when you heard the record, you know, the, the needles draw across right, the record, right? right? Um, so at that point, you know, I was, I was prepping for a doctoral qualifying exam on the Trinity and had never heard something like this before and never seen it in the early church. Um, but what really disturbed is um, the speaker, um, whose anonymity I always preserve, um, shares that um, if they disagree um, if if folks disagree with this and say there's no submission in the Trinity, it's probably because they've been essentially infected by feminism, uh, which, first of all, I'm not sure. It's know, a horrific disease. Yeah, infectious <laughs> in that regard. But second, um, I don't think is a very fair uh, analysis there. And so needless to say, I left that night pretty worked up and angry. Um, and so that, that spun into an article um, that I sent off to the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society where this this has uh, been a much, much larger debate, um, which attracted more attention than all my work on economic ethics combined, which sort of snowballed into more invitations to write and eventually into a, a book deal on the subject. Um, so here I am today. Um, it turns out one of my research specialties is submission in the Trinity. Wow. Yeah. It's, uh, well, you know, we, so we had, uh, we had Grant Kaplan on a couple of weeks ago and, and there was a, a similar kind of theme in, in, in his narration of his career, like, yeah, I was headed towards this one thing and then, <laughs> and then something else popped up and now I work on that. Um, so, uh, so you, you write this, um, ETS article. What, what was your, what, what was your angle there? Yeah. So I, so after this talk, I, I did a little research to see, you know, what's going on, how widespread is this, and come to find out there are a lot of figures at major evangelical seminaries who have backed this up. Uh, a lot of major sort of cultural institutions, uh, like at one point the Center for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, uh, counted this as a, a significant part of their platform. Um, my understanding is not 
not anymore, though I'm not aware of a public retraction of any significant nature. Um, and so then I started looking at the arguments against this claim that the uh, son eternally submits to the father. And in many of the books and articles I read, the biggest argument is, um, well, look, if the son has the property eternally submits and the father doesn't have that property, then they have a different essence. And we're talking about something like Arianism, where the son has an inferior essence, um, which I don't think is correct on a number of accounts. But most obviously, you need to have a personal property of the father and the son to distinguish them. So the you know, classically, the son is begotten, the father is unbegotten. Um, but that doesn't mean they have a different essence from the Nicene standpoint. Um, so I sort of took the argument in a different direction and have continued doing so. But the first article connected with Christology saying, the real problem is to submit, you need a distinct will. And if we make will a property of person instead of essence or nature in the Trinity, then you wind up with three wills. Um, which doesn't sound like that big of a deal until you connect that with Christology, where we have a divine person, a divine hypostasis in the incarnation, but not a human one, which would entail monothelitism, which of course was condemned at the Third Council of Constantinople because it causes pretty big theological problems all over the place. Um, and so where the debate had focused on who's Aryan and who's, who's feminist, I tried to redirect it toward, well, if we make this change in the Trinity, it sort of blows up everything else, starting with Christology. So, uh, so if you, now, now I, I'm curious, if you make the appeal to the authority of the councils in evangelical circles, does that play? Yes, to an extent. Um, so, I mean, there, there are certainly groups that would say the councils are great insofar as they follow the Bible. And so eventually I always have to make that exegetical debate that this isn't biblical. Um, you know, because if someone's reading first Corinthians eleven three that God is the head of Christ to entail submission, um, then they don't really care what Constantinople three says, mm -hmm. um, first Corinthians trumps Constantinople. But, um, there was also the argument that this historically had been Christian orthodoxy and that this was one of the reasons why this was attributed to the rise of, uh, often they would qualify it as evangelical feminism. Um, is that, look, this is what the church has always believed, and then we got concerned about gender roles being more equal, and you're distorting the Trinity. Mm. Um, and then the other side would say, well, actually, this is Arianism, which not exactly, um, and so this has always been condemned. Um, and so I'm trying to say, well, really, what was the historical debate that's going to help us think about this? And that's several centuries after Nicaea, actually. Mm -hmm. mm. Um, okay, so... Walk us through why, um, why, so why is, why, why in detail is the charge of Arianism not quite right? Uh, well, there's a lot there. Um, uh, first, um, I mean, the claim is, and this has been made by several people like Thomas McCall, um, uh, who is a bit more philosophically oriented, um, but the claim is that if you have any, uh, any property that is belonging to the father uh, that is not also belonging to the son, that that entails that they cannot be consubstantial, um, which, again, doesn't really work with the history of Trinitarian theology if you affirm the, um, the idiomata, if you affirm personal properties. Um, but a bigger problem, I think, is that 
um, there are a lot of features of Arius's thought, and then then later folks, uh, Eunomius, for example, uh, that don't really fit the evangelical scene right now. Um, so Arius, my understanding is, is partly appealing to the idea of eternal generation uh, to suggest that there must be some sort of subordination and distinction there. Um, whereas a lot of evangelicals and several involved in this debate have raised questions about eternal generation, um, particularly about the exegetical and you know, biblical basis for this doctrine. Um, you get to Eunomius, and, and his argument is focused on divine simplicity. Um, because God is simple, God can ultimately be identified with one attribute, and that would be being unbegotten. And so the Son can't have the essence because being begotten, he's got a totally different essence. Uh, well, again, a, a lot of major theologians, um, so uh, Wayne Grudem, um, uh, John Frame, uh, a number of others, uh, raise questions about simplicity and say, well, actually, we might, might have a material simplicity. God's not made of matter, but we do have you know, distinct properties. So the whole impetus in my mind behind what we might call Arianism, and even there, I'd much prefer you know, anti-Nicene as a label, um, doesn't really fit the theological context here. And so since the main argument accusing it of Arianism fails, and since the theological context is very different, I don't find that to be a particularly appropriate term or very helpful to diagnose the problem because everybody that keeps getting called Arian just gets mad and doubles down on their position because they rightly, I think, say, well, no, actually, I'm not being Arian at all. doesn't mean they're being orthodox. Um, but I think the whole Aryan label just is not helpful. So then, so then, um, to, to go back. So then, so so then, what's the alternative critique again? Sure. Um, well, the alternative critique basically says if you have submission, you got to have one of two things. You either have distinct wills. So, will is a property of the person of the son, and will is a property of the person of the father. And so you've got these. So we are going to go a little bit philosophy-oriented today, but we've, we've got these two different metaphysical layers. Uh, so the level of hypostasis or, or person and then the level of usia being. Um, as soon as you associate will with person, you use those same philosophical categories in Christology and say that there is only one uh, person in the incarnate Christ. And that person is the divine person, which would entail that there's only one divine will uh, in Christ and no human will. Um, so one of the biggest puzzles that that creates, for example, is how could the human Christ have been tempted? Um, James teaches that God cannot be tempted. The Gospels teach that Jesus was tempted. He only has a divine will, and the divine will can't be tempted, then you've got a big metaphysical mess there, trying to make sense of these different scriptural teachings, which is why classically uh, diothelitism says will is proper to nature, and because Jesus has two natures, you know, are, are roughly in some ways equivalent with that level of being and, and essence. Um, you have a human and a divine will. Um, the other option, if you don't want to say that will is a property of the person, is to distinguish somehow between modes of willing, which I've never seen really clarified, but let's, let's grant that that can be done. Um, if you say the son eternally submits to the father in everything he does, I think that causes some big problems in atonement theology and in the doctrine of God, um, sort of a, a ripple effect there. So pretty much no matter where you go, in the doctrine of the Trinity itself, it may not be an obvious mistake, 
but it quickly spills over into everything else that's built on this doctrine of the Trinity and, and sort of undermines a lot of classical theology, which for some schools of thought, you know, what's the big deal? You know, there's a lot of interest in revising doctrines all over the place, but in evangelical circles, that's a very big deal. Um, and I personally am pretty, pretty happy with classical orthodoxy. So it concerns me as well. Yeah. Um, so, so the, the label that this, this school takes is, is, uh, EFS, eternal functional subordination. What's the functional doing there? Sure. Um, uh, a quick footnote there. I, I use that label because it's oldest, but one of the side effects of this debate sort of spreading is that everybody's come up with their own labels. So you've got mm. ERAS and ESS and all this other stuff. So uh, pretty much if you find an acronym in evangelical doctrines of the Trinity, it's probably got to do with this. Okay. Um, but uh, function there um, is actually one of the places where this connects with gender roles. Um, I was just going to say that. It's like how women are equal, but like functionally subordinate or different. Yep, exactly. Uh, so equal in essence, but they have different functions or roles. And so mm -hmm. the father and son are equal in essence. They're consubstantial, but they each have a different role or function. And so, yeah. so Jesus belongs in the kitchen is what I'm hearing. <laughs> <laughs> sort of like that. Is that who's in the kitchen with Dinah? I've always wondered. <laughs> yeah. So they may not appeal to the kitchen, but they would actually say Jesus belongs on the cross because he is the functionally subordinate one. So that can answer Which, the question. Then when you go backwards to the gender stuff, just gets a little uncomfortable. Yeah, I'm, I'm very concerned about that. Um, so. But so, so, yeah, so, so take us through that. So, so, um, so for example, like, which way do you think the, um, what's the cart and what's the horse here in terms of the account of gender and the account of the Trinity? Or is, that, or, or is it possible to tell? It, it seems from your article that they almost started with the, the concern about gender identity and then read it back into, their, into the Trinitarian thought. Um, so there's a, a scholar named Kevin Giles who has done some analysis of the history of this debate. And, and he claims that the first time this argument ever shows up is in defense of you know, complementarianism, a, a differentiation in gender roles with uh, women submitting. Um, I think big picture, it ends up getting really messy because you've got this overlap of maybe that's where the article or the argument first shows up, but there are also a number of figures that are trying to, uh, in their own words, do some of the first biblical theology of the Trinity, which I don't think is accurate, but um, sort of reinventing from the grounds up almost. We're going to start with the Bible and based on these verses, explain the Trinity. Um, and so new terms and ideas and explanations are coming up there where there in those circles isn't much of an appeal to tradition. And some of those same terms are popping up in that context. And then those forces sort of converge to a point where today, I think it's kind of hard to tell which comes first for most people that would support this. Um, do they honestly, I think they do all honestly believe this is what the doctrine of the Trinity is, but you know, is that their starting point or did they start with gender questions and that lead them to the Trinity? I don't know, but it's so enmeshed now that um, it can be pretty do, do you always find them in pairs? I mean, is, is there anyone who is convinced of the legitimacy of this as a, as a sort of speculative account of divine life in, say, but then also as an egalitarian, just as a sort of matter of course? I can think of one figure that fits that, and that would be okay. Craig Keener on exegetical grounds. 
Um, and there are, there are a number of complementarians that would reject this view of the Trinity. So it certainly doesn't mean if you have certain roles of gender that you then automatically go this direction in evangelicalism. But for egalitarians to accept this is quite rare, hmm. which might itself be indicative of something. But then again, yeah. some evangelical yeah. circles, egalitarianism itself is quite rare. So maybe not. Sure. Um, so can, can you, uh, one of the things you said earlier is that you, you have knock on problems in terms of soteriology. Um, can you, what, what, what issues does, so, so the, the problems in terms of, uh, coordinating Christology and Trinitarian theology, I think are fairly evident. So, but what are the knock on effects in soteriology? Sure. Soteriology is a, a bit more messy because obviously there's not been this ecumenical council that says, here's our atonement model. Um, but particularly in evangelical circles, um, what I call uh, transactional atonement theories have a lot more traction. So Anselm's satisfaction theory or the penal substitution theory that we start to see among the reformed. Um, and penal substitution ends up including a lot of the ideas of folks like Anselm and just adding this extra punitive element. So. I, in one of the articles I sent you, and then in the book, I really focus on Anselm's theology um, and three aspects of his atonement model. There's that diothelite piece that for Jesus to be obedient in a human way, that he might atone for our sins, he needs that human will. Um, so that's already in jeopardy because of Christology. But let's imagine that you know that problem can be resolved. Um, then you've got this second problem of um, if God commands something, it, it fosters a moral obligation. Um, so if the father is eternally commanding the son, you know, you are commanded to go to earth and die, um, then the son has a moral obligation to do so. Um, so if he fulfills his own moral obligation, he's not done anything above and beyond what he ought to do. But the basis of um, Anselm's atonement model is this idea of supererogatory gift that in dying, Christ did more than he was obligated to do. And it's on the basis of that supererogatory gift, that gift above and beyond what's required, that we are able to receive justification and salvation, according to Anselm. Um, so that structure of command in the Trinity undermines supererogatory gift, which is why Anselm classically would um, add this third component of contingent necessity. Uh, it's necessary that Christ die um, but only on the supposition that Christ himself willed it with the single will shared with the Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, so Christ voluntarily did this, not under any obligation, and that's why this whole transaction works. Um, so uh, I, I think this has pretty considerable purchase in evangelical circles and, and many others as well because of the emphasis on those sorts of atonement models. Um, and really the question of you know, the will um, there's this great quote from Catherine Sonderegger. Uh, Once you land on the question of the will, you've really hit the centerpiece of Anselm's theology of the atonement. So start tweaking the divine will in terms of the Trinity, and it, you should expect huge repercussions in atonement mm -hmm. theology. I, um, I, I didn't, I wasn't quite able to think this through all the way for myself. So maybe you can help me. But it also seems to be that it would be caught up as well with. Um, the, the unfortunate tendency to make the cross itself a kind of direct instrument of uh, of the of of 
I guess in this case, we'd say the father's will, but the divine will in general, so that you have, um, the, 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 the cross, the cross is sort of, um, the, the instrument or the, the means by which, uh, God is affecting the, the, the saving and the redemption, right? So rather than, rather than the, the willingness to undergo the cross and the resurrection from death being the, the means and instrument, the actual crucifixion itself becomes um, something willed by God. Um, is that, I, don't know if, I don't know if that features in the conversation, but it was something that occurred to me as I was reading <coughs> the, the arguments. Um, um, I would think... I'm trying to think. I, I think for uh, uh, many penal substitution uh, positions historically that um, whichever side you landed on this debate, I, I think many historical figures would treat the will of God to directly will the cross. Um, so I don't know that there would be a specific challenge to the eternal functional subordination position. Um, but if you, grant, um, if you grant that for the sake of argument, the question then becomes who precisely is willing it. And I think for eternal functional subordination, it would be the father. And I think for a more classical view of God willing the cross, it would be all three together, I think is where the bigger debate lands, um, which is why, you know, a lot of folks don't like the idea of God directly willing the cross, but rather willing something else. And then the cross is sort of a step on the road to that, uh, which I think is one reason why, um, penal substitution isn't very popular in other places in the church. Yeah. Well, and, um, but, but, but and part of the reason I thought of it is because I was sort of wanting to circle back to the, um, we've been focusing on the dogmatic sort of implications, but also, you know, I do want to talk a little bit about the sort of, um, moral and political implications of using this as a model for thinking sure. about, about gender norms, gender relations, et cetera. Um, because, it, yeah, it would seem it would seem that you 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 quickly run into a problem of, um, like wait what what exa- what exactly in this relationship between father and son, uh, especially if the cross is something willed by the father and that the son submits to, like what exactly is the is the analogy here, um, and what kind of things can be justified according to this analogy, um, so yeah, I, I wonder what you know what what's uh, what are the gender politics that follow, I mean, out of this, or that are hitched to it, as the case may be? Right. Um, and that's actually something I'm concerned about. Um, we can simplify and say there are broadly three positions, and certainly there are a lot more on this. But, you know, if you take an egalitarian position, um, equal submission among men and women, um, you know, I don't see that that automatically supports any abusive patterns. Um, not that any of these automatically do, but I don't even think that that symbolically poses a risk of that problem. Um, we might have what we could call Ephesians 5 complementarianism, um, and I treat this in my book and uh, a little bit in one of my articles, but um, you know, that would be a, a reading of Ephesians 5 that says wives are the ones who submit to their husbands, husbands are the ones who then sacrifice for their wives. And so they wouldn't necessarily read that in the context of a, a larger submission mentioned earlier in the chapter. But if that's the case, the husband has the power, the wife submits, and the husband is the one who's supposed to sacrifice. Um, if this account of the Trinity is your basis for you know, gender roles on a complementarian angle, um, then the father, 
who's analogous to the husband in this, has the authority. And the son, who's analogous to the wife in this, is the one who submits and sacrifices. And so suddenly the one who has to bear, um, bear pain and suffering is the one who is not given the authority. And I think that's uh, a very different power dynamic from either Ephesians 5 complementarianism or egalitarianism. You know, wherever you want to land on, on the debate between those two. Um, this perspective, I could see, you know, inadvertently reinforcing abusive patterns. Um, you know, if, if an abusive husband is thinking, well, this is, this is what it is to be the submissive one, is to be like Christ. Or if a, a wife uh, is saying, well, this is what it means for me to submit, is to, you know, bear this punishment like the son did. Um, I think that can very quickly be problematic and dangerous. Well, that comes up already in like a lot of the more conservative literature, conservative angelical literature on spousal abuse, right? Like, well, women should stay because um, that's how you be Christ. Certainly. In um, your marriage. And I, I disagree. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So, <clears throat> so then. So, you know, it's easy to make appeals to the sort of classical orthodoxy of the positions um, as, as they've been interpreted uh, as a sort of appeal to authority. It, how do you find yourself making, um, making a, redirecting the conversation towards these classical positions of interpreting the relationship between persons and nature and will and these things on these questions um, in a way that's keyed to the conversation that's occurring? Um, what what lines of argument have you taken, sort of as a uh, maybe as a rhetorical matter, um, to address this particular community and their conversation? Right. Um, one thing I've tried to do is distinguish between a biblical theology and a systematic theology, arguing that at least one aspect of a systematic theology is trying to take, you know, patterns of ideas across the Bible um, that raises certain questions that the Bible itself doesn't directly answer. Um, so, uh, you know, I like to say I, I would have no need to have written a bunch on this. If there was this nice chapter in 1 Corinthians 17, we could just open to and say, well, here's where Paul explains the answer to this question, but that's not there. Um, and so what we end up having to do is look at verses all across the Bible. So I mentioned James saying that God can't be tempted and then the temptation accounts in the gospel narratives. Um, you add a lot of additional content there. Jesus not knowing the day nor hour that the Son of Man will come. Um, and yet other places, Jesus seeming to be able to read people's minds and things like that. Um, well, that suggests maybe there's a human and a divine mind there, you know, as the early church concluded. Um, and so what we've got in the tradition of orthodoxy is not just an appeal to authority, um, where, oh, some important people said this a long time ago, but I think it's a defensible um, philosophical explanation of how the things taught in the Bible can be true. And since the evangelical community is very concerned about, you know, the complete inerrancy of the Bible, accepting all, um, all of the teachings of the Bible, and, and I'm very concerned about having a very biblical theology, um, I think that provides a lot more context for why these documents are important. And if we can get better answers to our questions, how can God not be tempted? Jesus was, and yet Jesus was God. Through classical orthodoxy, then through modern explanations, then I think that's strong warrant for the classical positions as more philosophically sound. Mm. Um, 
Ryan, Robin, anything? Uh, I've been I've been grilling <laughs> on here for for a hot minute. You guys, anything you want to drill in on? Oh, I noticed in in your article, the I think the one called against divine submission. You're really eager to still defend penal substitution, not not Anselm satisfactionary atonement, but specifically penal substitution. And I, I guess I was wondering why. I mean, you say it's biblical, but like you reference Hebrews, which is of course referencing the temple sacrifice system, which um, I guess some people to like interpret as penal substitution, but I'm not sure if that's entirely fair although i haven't read rick's uh two goats one cup uh dissertation have any of you guys <laughs> well now we're gonna get the uh the explicit warning on this episode uh, there it is. <laughs> it's goats guys no but i mean i, I don't know if you if you're how familiar people are with first i'm not i'm i'm just not um soteriology is not mary a specialty but for me penal substitution has always been a completely unnecessary um, doctrine because it's a misunderstanding of Anselm and also most of the biblical passages that suggest it. You said like reference like Old Testament sacrificial systems, and I'm not entirely convinced that that's the same thing as penal substitution. So I was wondering if you could talk more about why you want why you want to save penal substitution in this in this conversation. Sure, um, well, I admit the atonement is actually not my area as well. Um, so. Uh, which again, technically my area is economic ethics. So I find myself wandering further and further away from the, um, I find, uh, I want to defend penal substitution, um, for a couple of reasons. Um, I mean, I, I am confessionally reformed and so that's central in a lot of, uh, reformed confessions and catechisms. Um, and so my, my default in having taken that position is to uphold that until I've been convinced otherwise, rather than assume it's false until I've been convinced it's true. Um, and so even though I haven't necessarily waded into a lot of the technical debates on that, um, what I have read has not uh, dissuaded me from penal substitution necessarily. Um, what I have read and what defense I would offer, um, so uh, some of it boils down to you know some of the debates between expiation and propitiation and, and how do we translate things like that in Romans. Um, and I, I do tend to side a little bit more with the idea of um, something that Jesus did on the cross not only did away with the consequences of sin, um, but actually um, made God favorable by bearing the punishment, which I would point to something like Jesus becoming a curse. Um, my understanding of that is, you know, he's, he's bearing the curse that would have been assigned to us. Um, and so not just that he's, you know, making a payment on our behalf, as Anselm would say, though that's a component of it, but that he's actually transforming the wrath of God into the favor of God through bringing that wrath to its end. Um, so that, that's a very non-technical answer there of why I would defend it. Um, but I haven't thought hugely along the lines of that other than. But it, it seems like it would have, um, I mean, it's, I think it's a good thing to like have arguments for the stuff that you want to uh, believe in stuff. That's sure. all great. Yeah, yeah. But it seems like it, it has a more, um, I don't, I mean, I don't want to, cheapen it by calling it rhetorical but um 
all of the people that you're trying to talk to and convince of the the error of this position, the, the EFS position, are all stakeholders in this uh, theory of atonement at one level or another, right? I mean, they're they're sort of whether they're Baptists or or Dutch Reformed, they're all sort of invested in one way or another in in this kind of very typically Reformed account of soteriology. So. It, it would just seem to me that if you're able to demonstrate that this this kind of uh, speculative account of of the Trinity threatens like the very ground of the possibility of affirming penal substitution, then you've really raised the stakes for um, for folks who are going to take this position. Right. Well, and especially because for a lot of reformed and for evangelicals generally, penal substitution is the only model of atonement. Right. Not one among many, right? Yeah, I think um I think Tom Schreiner would, would be someone who would say that. Um and he actually is one who advocates eternal submission. So that would that would target him. I like a multiple series of atonement models as providing different aspects of the biblical narrative um myself, but so I want to know, Glenn, how how is this uh, how's this gone down with uh, with the other other folks involved in the debate? What kind of um, feedback have you gotten, either from uh, your your earlier publications, which were in very mainstream evangelical outlets, to to now having the the more fulsome treatment in the book? Yeah. Um... It's interesting. This has had a lot of traction on a, a very popular level. Um, nothing else I've written is something that really anybody cares about. <laughs> I, I have one or two technical articles on the doctrine of the Trinity that, you know, sometimes I'll meet a scholar at a conference and they'll say, oh, you wrote that article on De Reunion, you know, and it's got a couple of citations. But I've gotten emails from, you know, MDiv students, uh, from pastors of churches holding conferences on the Trinity. Um, you know, because their church communities are having this debate. Um, and I, I was reached out to by a Baptist in Indiana who was going through some uh, sort of pastoral counseling material that included this content and started a big debate across Baptists in Indiana. Um, and so I've gotten a lot of feedback and a lot of, you know, a lot of hits on my article on academia.edu, for example, and uh, a lot of citations, you know, at more of a popular level. But I'm actually not aware of any of the, you know, bigger figures that I've disagreed with ever responding to the content or maybe even ever reading it, unfortunately. Um, the one exception, I know that uh, Bruce Ware wrote a blog post during, there was this big online debate about this a couple of years back, um, and he responded to me. Uh, kind of taking one quote out of context. Um, and I, I believe that that uh, post actually ended up becoming part of a new sort of anthology on this debate that came out with B&H that I've seen, um, where he recreates sort of this uh, responding to one sentence of my argument. But that, that's the only engagement I've aware, I'm aware of so far at the you know, level of the professors who are advocating this, even though it's gotten a lot of traction among church communities, which... I think it's pretty cool. Um, there are some figures who agree with me. I've kind of been on a, a whirlwind uh, tour of podcasts this last month or two. I have 
three new ones coming out the week that this one's going to release. So, um, so a lot of people have wanted to hear what I have to say from the side that used to be calling this Arianism. So maybe that will stop. Mm. Um, but I don't know that it'll change many of the leading figures' minds if, if it's not really being read because so many are writing on this debate and I'm a nobody in the evangelical world. So, Well, and, some, and sometimes we engage debates uh, hoping but not confident that our interlocutor will be convinced, but uh, for the sake of the people listening to the debate going on. Sure. Um, sometimes, sometimes, you know, Sometimes we are, we're, we're not, we're not primarily addressing our interlocutor. Um, so, uh, so how do you, how do you then, uh, how, how does the book go? So you, you write a couple of these articles, you've got a couple of technical things on the Trinity, um, and you get the opportunity to write a book about it. What's the, what's the path you take through the book? Yeah. So I basically expand my articles and I try and simplify them a little bit. Though the reading level is still, you know, probably more for folks that have done a little master's work at least, uh, or some serious undergrad education. Um, but I basically walk through chapter by chapter each doctrine, what the problem is. Um, so starting with the doctrine of the Trinity and the idea of inseparable operations, which I think this undermines and a number of folks who defend this explicitly reject inseparable operations, uh, to Christology and that diothelite problem. Uh, to the doctrine of the atonement, looking at satisfaction and penal substitution, uh, and some of these questions of, uh, you know, does this reinforce abuse? Um, then I look at the doctrine of God. If God is simple and eternal and immutable and things like that, can we even talk about submission as something that God does? Does that make sense with sort of these classical attributes? Um, and I do a, a brief discussion of theological anthropology, basically saying, don't base human relationships on the Trinity. Um, not a good idea. Can you, can then, you spell that? Can you spell that argument out a little bit? Because uh, I think um, that that seems like a. I think for for people who don't have the technical training that some of us do, that seems like a counterintuitive claim, right? Well, if right. If, if God is this way and what we want to be is godlike, godly, then why wouldn't we want to model or imitate or some or you know participate or whatever um, in our not just in our individual but also in our interpersonal and our social arrangements. What God is in the divine community. Um, I also think that's a bad idea, but I think maybe it's worth stopping to say like, sure. I, I know it seems like a good idea, but here's why not. And this actually might we might have finally hit on a, a conversation and a debate that's relevant to a much wider listening audience than the evangelical world. Mm -hmm. um, using God as, or particularly the Trinity as exemplary for ethics is I think a very modern phenomenon. And so actually I can talk economic ethics now where I, I know the most. Um, so in economic ethics, uh, I mean, you've got folks that are arguing because of the Trinity, capitalism is right. Uh, so Novak will say, you know, uh, corporations involve multiple parties cooperating and working together in the economy the same way that, the Trinity involves Father, Son, and Spirit cooperating and working together. Um, then you can have appeals for more of a socialist perspective because um, Father, the Son, and the Spirit share everything the way that our economy should share everything. And so I, I think um, Meeks makes an argument similar to that, um, and so forth and so on. Um, appeals to the Trinity um, in terms of sexual ethics. So I've seen um, sort of queer theology appealing to the Trinity and, and sort of the 
uh, unusual, so to speak, stereotypical gender roles we see in the Trinity in certain ways. And uh, if we're going to count the Trinity as a family, in a lot of respects, it's not a very classical family. Um, and then you've got evangelicals appealing to the Trinity um, to justify a certain view of gender roles. It's quite different. Um, and I think all of these approaches I don't find particularly helpful um, because of you know, something like the, the doctrine of analogy. Uh, the idea that anything we're saying of the created world and of God, we're saying in an analogous way. So there's a similarity there, but an even greater dissimilarity. So it's very easy, I think, to nail, you know, to sort of nail down one attribute of God, perichoresis, uh, or relational distinction, or consubstantiality, or even something that's not classical, like you know, submission, and then map that onto you know, human relationships with a one-to-one correlation. And I think there's never going to be that one-to-one correlation. Um, there's always going to be a greater dissimilarity there. Um, and it's really hard to take all of the attributes of the Trinity and map it onto society. So I think theology has a lot to say about economics, about political structures, about, you know, family and gender and all of these things. But I don't know that the doctrine of the Trinity is a great way to go to answer any of those questions. There are other places to turn uh, to look into that. It's interesting, too, because there's no real biblical move, at least in, like, say, gender relationships, because in the Bible, those are almost always portrayed as, like, the relationship between God and Israel, Christ and the church. Like, you don't get marriage portrayed as a relationship between father and son or father some spirit or or anything like that i think in the bible that i can think of but i mean yeah, i'm an ethicist so i don't i don't read that <laughs> there there are two places that are pointed to usually um one would be you know genesis one um the image of god male and female he created them understanding that to mean that there's an analogy between male and female and whatever's going on in god of course not specifying what that is and the other is first corinthians 11 um, where there's this connection between uh, man being the head of woman and God being the head of Christ. And there's all sorts of debates there about what does head mean. Um, but I, I just make it even more simple. Well, Christ is a human title. So I still don't think that's talking about the Trinity, mm. yeah, you know, the imminent Trinity. Um, but that, yeah, there's really not much to stand on there. That's great. Thanks. Um, so sorry, but I interrupted you. So you were, you were talking about the theological anthropology and then what was the next step in the book? Uh, that's actually the Bible chapter. Oh, okay. Um, so I, I look at all the proof texts and say, that's not what they're saying. <laughs> so and then that, there you have it. That's the book. Great. And what, give us the title one more time. Uh, it's the son who learned obedience. I just looked over the book as if I don't know what it's called myself. <laughs> uh, the son who learned obedience, a theological case against the eternal submission of the son. Terrific. Um, and like I said, we'll, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, and uh, any, any other questions, y'all? Or comments? I, I feel like I've talked, talked your ears off. Oh, I, I'm still uh, just my head spinning on some of this, but <laughs> rejecting the doctrine of inseparable operations. I just, why, why would one want to do that? Do they still affirm consubstantiality? I mean, that's like what consubstantiality means. <laughs> they do uh, in, in, in language. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, hey, nominalism is super popular. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's, I don't, it's hard to know. 
hard to know what to say about that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I guess those are my prejudices speaking in, to some extent. And that's kind of where I started is a, why would someone say this? Yeah. And, and why did the church get so excited about this? Like, I'm really angry now. Um, <laughs> it's taken a number of years for me to say, you know, try and give a sympathetic read and understand, you know, well, if you're starting with the exegesis and then moving from there, you know, it took a couple hundred years for inseparable operations to emerge. So right. you know, if somebody doesn't do it in the first 10 years of their career, I can't be too angry. I can basically just say, maybe that's why we should have, you know, structured things a little differently. Um, and this was, this was something that you're, I've taught. You're so much more charitable though. Oh. <laughs> you're so much more charitable. I look at this and I'm like, they want, like, they want to keep women submitted and they found a way to justify it. Like, I just, I'm, maybe I'm really unfair, but I just don't think that there's a lot of like goodwill. Like, I think there's an agenda behind this, like mm -hmm. to, to affirm a certain model of human relationships and then to read that back into God to justify it. I mean, that's yeah really how it seems to me. And that seems to be what gives it its driving force. And there probably are some folks that out there that it applies to, but I believe there are others who, uh, particularly since no scholars are really reading this so far, it's mostly on the popular level. There are people who just want to know what the Bible and theology says, and so they pull off some of the best-selling theology books, and then this is what they say. Um, and so I think extending charity to them, I'm hoping to change minds so that there are a few less pastors out there preaching that, you know, wives should submit to their husbands like christ did on the cross it's not not quite the way we want to go there yeah um, well and, and i can also imagine someone who um is uh i you know i can imagine that there are folks who are not who are who are not sort of always already integrated in those ways and so have these questions about okay how does the trinity emerge from the bible and how do we do a kind of exegesis that makes sense of what the bible says and then they take the gender power relations and the, the ideals of those power relations in their communities and find the analogy between the Trinitarian theology and those to be um, warrant, right? So rather than being motivated by the preservation of the power dynamics, they take them as so given that, uh, that they then serve as evidence for the truth of the theological position. That look, this theological position accords with what, we, what is sort of obviously true about the relationship between men and women and how that and and sort of um, how that is an, it's a, a way of imitating God. Um, so I could see sort of I could see it running both directions um, in terms yeah. of the, the the function that the gender politics play. Um, it's been a challenge to me, and I've not risen to the challenge yet. But to write at a level that is accessible, because one feature of this is if if someone wants you know if there's a debate happening among you know members of the congregation without that academic background. I can't really say, well, here, read Lewis Ayers, it'll help. Yeah. Um, but the other side could easily say, well, read this book and that book and this book, and it's very intro level. Mm -hmm. um, and I, even, even The Son Who Learned Obedience is not written for the average person in the pew. Um, and so mm -hmm. sort of a PR war in some senses. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, I, just got, I just got a text message from my wife, Oscar, my, my three-year-old. Uh, Oscar is using superpowers all over the kitchen. Then suddenly he says, okay, I need to put my superpower down now because I'm getting married. So my yeah. wife asked, who are you getting married to? He responded, God. There we go. All right. Nice. So anyway, that's he's, happening in my house no, right so now. So he's becoming a nun. That's what I'm hearing. <laughs> that's about right, actually. Um, 
I think that's about right. Uh, putting down your superpower to marry God. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> oh, to be three. Um, well, that's, uh, Glenn, thanks so much. That's, uh, terrifically interesting. And, uh, I, you know, what, uh, are you, are you going to keep, uh, keep at it in terms of engaging this topic or are do you have other stuff you want to, you want to, you know, get back to the, the bread and butter of, of doing economics and theology or what's, what's coming up in the future for you in terms of, uh, thinking? Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of taking a time out from this. Uh, I need a break. Um, I have, so I'll give you guys the inside scoop for anybody who's still listening at this point in the podcast. Oh boy. Um, I, I have just signed a contract with Baker for a, a survey of the doctrine of the Trinity. Congrats. Um, so I have signed it. They're going to sign it and return it. So I guess it's possible it never comes back and this never happens, in which case <laughs> uh, errata in, in your podcast history. Yeah. Um, Still, nobody knows what I'm doing in economic ethics, but I have some purchase in the Trinity. So I'm, I'm going to write that um, and try and do something, you know, an intro level survey text um, for, you know, advanced undergrad or seminary. Uh, and then hopefully I'll have enough name recognition that I can get my dissertation published um, because behavioral economics and experimental economics and theology doesn't just automatically fly off the shelf if you're a nobody. Um, and so that's sort of five-year plan is get those two things published. Cool. Does it fly off the shelf if you're a somebody? <laughs> if you're a big enough somebody, which I won't be yet, but I think I have to prove I can sell more than about seven or eight copies before I'll get that contract. Yeah, well, not sure. So. Ryan, Ryan can tell you all about that now. Sure. I don't want to make you sad. <laughs> yeah, I guess I shouldn't have told the marketing person. I don't think that'll sell seven copies. So when I pitch it to you in a few years, you'll say, hey, remember when you said? We have it on tape. <laughs> um yeah that's you know one of the things i was going to start to say earlier um you know you and ryan and myself were were students of steve long when he was at marquette and uh d Stephen long that is and uh you know what one of the things i that was a a point of miscommunication i've mentioned before was um that the steve was engaged in these conversations of of doctrinal revisionism in a way that, that Ryan and I especially were not. Um, and so our sort of openness to uh, all speculative questions and the willingness to sort of engage whatever speculative questions arises was often taken as uh, a kind of openness to the revision of all doctrines. Um, so I think it's, it's, uh, it's really good. I'm glad to know that, that you're the person writing that book <laughs> who, can, who can wade into the sort of explosion of um, efforts to to sort of try try to critically revise doctrine um with such a firm grasp on the the classical orthodox positions i think that's um that's really terrific um i'm really i'm glad to hear that thank you all right team any anything else for glenn i think we've occupied enough of his saturday morning yeah all right well i've got i've got an insistent toddler at the door oh yeah do you tell me something (laughs) oh it's important business um, I've got uh, 10 inches of wet snow that's about to start falling, but I have a brand new snowblower as of last night, so I'm not going to throw my <laughs> yeah. back out. The last one in Minneapolis, I'm told. That's, that's what they say. Yeah. Now we're um, going to get all these angry tweets about like, you know, you took my snowblower. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> You're the one. Yeah. Okay. Well, hey, um, thanks. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Um, 
we sure appreciate you. If when you go to listen to our podcast, you haven't subscribed to it yet, uh, please do that. Hit that little subscribe button. Uh, if you have a, uh, just a little bit of time, could you give us uh, a rate and review? That helps people find the show. It, it bumps us up in the algorithm so people can go, oh, what's the systematically business? Um, if you are interested and able, we have a Patreon, which is a, a way that you can support the podcast on an ongoing basis. You can find that at patreon.com slash systematically. Um, we are at Systematic Pod on Twitter. If you want to send an angry tweets at us that you couldn't get a snowblower at 9.30 last night or whatever. Um, if you want to send us an email, uh, you can do that at systematicallypodcast uh, at gmail.com. And um, our intro and outro music, as ever, is track 14 off of Ghost 2 by Nine Inch Nails. And uh, I think that's our show. Thanks so much for listening. And this week... Be attentive.